Well, in my sermon last week, I mentioned the great missionary William Carey, who is known today as the father of modern missions. Carey had a vision to reach India, and as I mentioned last week, he faced various hardships. His son Peter died of dysentery, his wife went insane, his ministry partner squandered all of their money, and yet his trials really began before he even stepped foot on Indian soil. William Carey lived at a time when there was no mission societies in England, and he saw a great contradiction between what his church taught and what he saw in the Scriptures. Carey was part of a particular Baptist church, and they taught that the great commission given by Jesus, which is go out into all the world and preach the gospel, they believed that was only for the first century disciples and not for their modern generation. Carey opposed such a narrow view, and when he decided to present his ideas of missionary work to his church, the minister told him, sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, he will do it himself. Which is absolutely, unequivocally false. False and unbiblical. God's work of bringing the gospel to the nations involves human agency and His plan has always been to use His church to spread that message. Always. So, Kerry had this vision for missions in a, in a society that was not missions oriented at all. So he had to convince his fellow Christians of two things. One, that God ordains certain people to be sent on the mission field. And two, that it's the responsibility of the church to finance the mission to those whom he sends. So, to defend this thesis, he wrote an essay entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. In this essay, he argues for the plain meaning of the text of Matthew 28.19, which says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is the commission for all generations and not just the first generation. In the final section of his essay, Carey presents an argument that it is the Christian's duty, that's you, to financially support missionary efforts. It's not just a select few people who are called to missions. All believers are called to participate in missions. All believers. Those who go and those who stay are all to be part of that same work. One of my favorite quotes from William Carey reveals the importance of both the sent and the senders. When he was talking to a contemporary named Andrew Fuller, he shared with him his desire to go to India, and he said to him, I will go down if you will hold the rope. 
I will go down if you will hold the rope. And the idea, the picture here is if, if, if someone is stuck in a pit, the rescue operation would involve two parties. There would be those who go down into the pit, and there would be those who hold the rope. And both are absolutely necessary to accomplish the work. With missions, you could have those who are called to go and bring the message, but they don't have the financial support to do it. Or you could have churches who have the finances, but don't have anyone to send. And so it's absolutely indispensable that both of those parties are involved in missions. Now, maybe some of you are thinking right now, ah, I've seen these kinds of messages He's going to whip us up into a frenzy to give to missions and He's going to take an offering at the end of the service and we're all going to have to get out our wallets and give to missions. And I want to set your mind at ease right now. There will be no offering. This is not one of those kinds of messages. This is more of a financial um, update of what our church our elders have decided to do with the money that you have already given. Now what brought this on was something that we've been praying about for the last several years, and that is, what are we as a church going to do about a church building? We've been saving money since the inception of Heritage Valley Bible Church in 2002. And from the beginning, we have always been a transient church. Transient meaning lacking permanence in a particular place. We began by renting the Veterans Memorial Building back in 2002. And then we moved to the Religious Science Building on River for a number of years. And that's when I joined you. And then we rented the church building on Central for about seven years. And then we were back at the Memorial Building in 2019. And then we moved here to First Baptist Church for the last few years. Not only has Fillmore not given us many options as far as procuring a property, but we have done quite well without one. We are not a church that has so many activities during the week that we are being hindered from doing ministry because we don't have a building. Because of this, we have concluded that if we continue to be a transient church and are left with no other options other than to rent from others, we would still be fully capable of fulfilling our duty as a church. So we unanimously decided as elders that we are not going to pursue owning our own property. This is a meeting we had several months ago. We've been discussing it every time we meet. We have landed firmly on this idea that that is not something that we are looking for. Doesn't mean we will never look for a building. It doesn't mean God might change circumstances and we would want to own a building. It just means that is not on our radar radar now or any time in the near future. So then the discussion became, what should we do with the money that we have saved? If we 
have been having a savings account since, since 2002, and you have all been faithfully giving since then, it would not benefit you, the giver, it would not benefit we as a church to have a fat savings account that just sat there not being used when there are so many needs out there in the world and we have such a great responsibility to promote the gospel in the world. Add to this that two years ago, my wife and I decided that I would not take a salary from the church anymore because the Lord has blessed us with a very prosperous business. And so as the church pays us a salary, we just return it back into the offering box. At least most of it, that is our plan. This last year we fell a little bit short of that. But for the most part, the salary that was once coming to my family is now going back into heritage offering. And so we have a good sum that we would like to use for the kingdom. We decided we would keep a large enough amount for the sake of our own people, for the sake of emergency, or for the sake of supporting a pastor in the future. Let's say I drop dead suddenly and the elders decide they want to find a pastor that they do not feel called to lead the church and they would like to do what they did when I came. They want to make sure they have enough in the savings to do that. So if no one else gave a dime after that, we would have enough to pay such a one for three years or so. So we have this savings account. We have decided to save a portion of this savings account, which is about half. And we decided to take the other half and use it toward gospel ministry, both near and far. And what I want to do with our time together is to persuade you from the Scriptures, much like William Carey did back in the 1790s, that this is very near to the heart of God. I want to persuade you that it is good for us as a church to be investing in the Gospel, getting the Gospel to the world, and to be faithful stewards with what we've been given. This is not a sermon to stir up your emotions, to, to guilt you into giving more. This is a message about where your giving is going and why it is necessary that we as a church be involved in this. I will even reserve some time at the end if anyone has any questions about any of this. So I had Richard read the letter of 3 John, and I wanted you just to get the big picture of the whole thing, but it's these four verses that we are going to be focusing on. 3 John 5 reads, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now I trust we are all familiar with the Apostle John. He was one of the sons of thunder with his brother James, who were turned from radical religious zealots 
to lovers and leaders of the early church. We know that John authored the fourth gospel. He also authored the book of Revelation. Some of you may even know that he wrote a letter called 1 John, which we just got finished studying on Wednesday night. And if there is a 1 John, that necessitates there are other Johns, and so there is a 2nd and 3rd John that are not as well known, and I would be willing to wager you may have never even heard a sermon out of 2nd or 3rd John. They are very short. You can sit down and read each one in about two minutes. But in this book of 3 John, there is one of the clearest descriptions of how the local church should think about missions and missionaries. We're only going to look at verses 5 through 8, but within those verses is contained one of the most wonderful and weighty descriptions of the obligation that we have to pursue ministry beyond the four walls of our church building, not ours. (laughs) If you think of Heritage Valley Bible Church as completely fulfilling our duty within these walls and nowhere else, your vision of the local church is incomplete. If you think of church as only singing and reading and praying and preaching and then we all scatter to our homes until we come back again and do it all next week, and that is the extent of our church's influence, then you have a deficient view of our church biblically. So that was my introduction. Let me give you some context for the letter as I like to do. The author is the Apostle John, who refers to himself simply as the Elder. For some reason, John does not like to name himself. In John, the Gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. In his letters, he refers to himself as the Elder, at least 2nd and 3rd John. And he's writing to an individual named Gaius, verse 1 the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. We know that most of the epistles are written to churches. A few are written to individuals. This is one of them. We do not know who Gaius is other than what we learn from this letter. John is thankful for him because he's one of the good guys. He is contrasted with a man later in the letter Uh, named Diotrephes, who is not one of the good guys. John continues in verse 2. He says, Beloved, this is writing to this man, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. So the reference here to walking in the truth is not only that he's believing sound doctrine, but that his actions are in accord with the teachings of Christ. 
John uses walking often. It's a metaphor for living out the Christian life. And when John commends him here, he's not merely saying that he's orthodox in his belief of the deity of Christ or in the future bodily resurrection of the dead. But his praise has to do with Gaius living out the faith. Now, we're not given exhaustive detail about what happened with him, but we can kind of put the pieces together here just based on what John recounts. So we go to the text we're going to study. In verse 5, he says, Beloved, again, this is an individual, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. We don't know who they are. Strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. We'll stop there. So these were some believers who came to this man named Gaius, whom he did not know personally, but we know they are solid believers because John puts the title of brothers on them. They were Christians who were not part of his community. We know that because he says they were strangers to him. And Gaius welcomed them and took care of their needs, and that was very commendable. And it appears that these men testified before the church of how well that Gaius took care of them. That's kind of the extent of what we know here. We discover in verse 6 that these men are on a journey. That's significant to note. We are going to find out in verse 7 what kind of journey this is. Because it's going to tell us that they have gone out for the sake of the name. That's very key in our discovery of who these men are and what kind of journey they are on we would call these men missionaries. The name, of course, is the name of Jesus. These are ones who are sent out to spread the gospel. They are fulfilling the great commission that Jesus gave to them to go out and preach the good news to the nations. These are examples of ones who go. But Gaius is not one who goes. And what John says to him here in verse 6 is very important. He says, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now, I do not have a definition of what a manner worthy of God is, but I have a feeling what he means is A manner worthy of God is help them fulfill their mission. I think it's a reference to financial support for the work that they're doing. They've been given a calling by God. John wants to encourage Gaius that he has been given a calling as well, and that is to help provide for ones such as these. I think a manner worthy of God means that you share in the mission of God. You become a partner in the work of God. 
you meet their needs so that they can do what God has called them to do. And we discover this is exactly what Gaius does with these missionaries. He took care of their needs while they were with him. And he's also encouraged to send them off in a way that they can fulfill their calling. This will not only benefit those who are taking the gospel to a different land, but it will benefit him because he now becomes a partner in their ministry. Again, verse 7, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So the picture is becoming more and more clear. We know the sake of the name is a reference to Jesus. Having gone out makes it clear that these are ones who are sent. And because this is about the Great Commission, which all Christians are called to participate in, John's reasoning is you are to send them in a way that is worthy of God. Because this is a work of God. Because we are the people of God. The people of God support the work of God, not those of the world, which is what he means when he says, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Gentiles is not Jew versus Gentile idea. This is Gentiles being an unbeliever. This is a metaphor that's used in the New Testament. Paul uses it. John uses it. Peter uses it. It's a reference to the unbelieving world. This means these men who are being sent out are to be supported by Christians and Christians alone. They are not to raise money by approaching secular corporations. They are not to try to fulfill their mission by sending out mailers to the general population. It is the church of Jesus Christ who is to support the ministry of those who are sent. That much, I think, is clear. Imagine what a bad witness it would be for Christian missionaries who claim to be on a mission from God going and begging the world for support. Imagine putting together a fundraiser where you seek to pull on the heartstrings of unbelieving people by talking about orphans and by talking about poor people and trying to raise money from people who do not have a heart for the same mission that you do, which is the Gospel. And they may have an interest in the other ministry you're doing there, but they could not care less if these people come to know Jesus Christ. I think it's a bad witness to the world. 
I think it makes the claims that you're called by God fall flat because it is a mission by God and God's people ought to be supplying the needs, meeting the needs. These men wouldn't do it. Notice what it says. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles. It almost seems like some unbelievers offered and they said, I don't, I'm not going to take that. <laughs> I mean, John, more than any, I mean, speaks of the spiritual separation between believer and non-believer. There's the children of light and the children of darkness we just saw in 1 John on Wednesday nights. There's the children of God and the children of the devil. And you do not want the devil's fingerprints on the work that God is doing. Now, some might reason, well, money is money and you should get, get it from wherever you can. But I don't believe that's the way we're supposed to think about this. I believe God has given His people enough resources that we should be able to supply the needs to every missionary in the world. And perish the thought that we have to get money from the world to try and reach the world. We don't need to do that because God supplies our needs. There's a similar related text about this in 2 Corinthians. Paul writes to the church and he's talking about the church in Jerusalem that was very poor and needy and they couldn't continue on in the work that they needed to do and so he compels them to give. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 10-12. He says, God, the one who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So one reason the church needs to be part of the sending and the giving to missions is because this is a ministry that works both directions. The churches that give have joy in supporting the other ministry, it results in many thanksgivings to God, and God continually amazes the church in how He supplies their needs. The church in Corinth was not going to run out of money in their supporting of the church in Jerusalem. They just weren't. God wouldn't let that happen. And so here Paul commends them for supporting this ministry that is outside of their local church, and he says not only is this going to benefit them, it's going to benefit you. Back to our text, 3 John, verse 8. He says, Therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. 
Now, when Christians take of their resources, their finances, their time, whatever it is, and they invest that in some other ministry that is not in their local context, they become co-laborers with the people in those places. Co-laborers. He calls it fellow workers here. The Greek is soon ergos. Soon means with. Ergo means to work. And so you're working alongside, you're working with, you're working together for. And it's the picture of the the pit and the rope. It's the one that must work with the other. It's the two coming together to do the same work. And when that happens, both parties benefit from the work. They both get reward for the work. This is the work of God. We are all called to this work of God. And that means everybody is involved even though not everybody is sent. There are two categories as far as I can tell. There are those who are sent and there are those who are sending and you will be in one category or the other. You are either in being sent or you are either in those who are sending. I've alluded to the Great Commission multiple times now. We can look at it briefly. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, baptizing and teaching and observing all that Jesus has commanded is happening in the local church all over the world. We are in the process of disciple-making here in Fillmore. But this does not mean that once we are converted, we are to go and all be sent somewhere. God spreads the Gospels through missions and plants churches, and those churches are to be in that location and work in the process of making disciples and doing everything He says here. We need the truth in every place localized in Fillmore and in Afghanistan and in China and in New Zealand and all around the world. So when Jesus gives this command, He's not saying every individual believer is going to be on the mission field, but He does mean that there are those who go and we are all to participate. If we are given a commission by Jesus Himself to go and make disciples of all nations, and you are not called by God to be one of those who go, meaning you have never been given a burden by God for a particular place or people, you've never had the conviction that God has called you to missions, 
you believe you're to remain where you are and thrive and be a Christian and be used here by God, then your calling in the Great Commission becomes one of support to those who are called. There are the sent and there are the senders and you fall into one of those categories and both are indispensable to the mission. Again, in verse 8, he says, Therefore, we ought to support people like these. Why? That we may be fellow workers for the truth. And all week I've just been thinking about how wonderful a concept that is. What John is saying here is that you can invest in a work across the globe and you can be part of the ministry that's happening there without ever stepping foot on foreign soil. Your work of support is just as important as their work and they can't do it without you. The minister who told William Carey that God will do it without him was totally wrong. What a horrible thing to tell someone. Both are necessary and both will be rewarded for it. So picture this now. Fellow workers working together. They're working there. You're working here. You're supporting their work. We as a church are supporting their work. And they are going to be rewarded for that work in that place. And we are going to be rewarded for that work in that place. Now there's an interesting passage in 1 Samuel chapter 30 that I think is very relevant to this. This might seem out of left field, but let me give you some context here. David is on the run from Saul. David has been told by God that he's going to be the next king. But he can't stay in Israel because Saul wants to kill him. So he and a couple, I can't remember how many hundreds of men, go and they are in Philistine territory and they are allowed to live in a town called Ziklag and they are actually fighting with some of the Philistines in some of their battles except against Israel. And as these men are off in a battle with the Philistines, the Amalekites come and they raid their camp and they take away David and his men and their women and children. They take away their, their, their families. They take away their possessions. David amasses his army to go after the Amalekites, but he leaves 200 men behind to stay with their stuff. In Ziklag. And when he and those men go and fight and get their stuff back, the men who went say, we don't want to share the stuff with the men who stayed because they didn't go, they stayed. That's a big explanation of what's going on here. Listen to this. And then I'll make the point. 1 Samuel 30, 22. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead his wife and children and depart. 
But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And then he says, And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So David understood in their mission to go defeat the Amalekites, they needed some to go and they needed some to stay. And both were so important to the mission that he said they should be rewarded equally. They were co-laborers even though they didn't go with them. It was necessary that some remain. It was necessary that some go. And both were rewarded for that work. Now you and I have an opportunity to go into all the world just like Jesus gave us in that commission. And we can preach the Gospel throughout the world and yet do it without even leaving our nation. We do it through our support as a church. That means we can look after orphans and widows in their distress. We can fulfill the great commission of bringing Christ to the nations. We can be co-laborers with others in translating the Bible in different languages. We can be co-laborers by establishing and planting churches in various places. And we can do it all within these four walls. It's an extension of the ministry we have in Fillmore. You can be a co-laborer to Pakistan or Kenya, or Uganda, or China, and never take a plane trip, never set foot in one of those nations. How can that be? Because you're called to hold the rope. Now briefly as we conclude, I want to share with you three ministries that we as a church have supported and do support already, and that we as elders decided that we would make a difference in the work that they're doing. What I mean by make a difference is we're not saying we just want to increase our monthly giving to these ministries by a couple hundred dollars, but we want to make a, a, a substantial difference in how these ministries operate with what we have been holding on to in savings. You will be familiar with these, I trust. The first one is Bread for Life. My friend Robin Mayoka, who's been here multiple times, she began baking bread and selling that at various churches and then using the money that she made from that to help orphans in Uganda. And so she, over the years now, has planted four bakeries. She has been involved in rescuing abandoned babies through this uh, ministry called Sanyu Babies Home. She has joined with African Hearts, which is a child sponsorship program 
which helps these children get a Christian education and meet their, meet their physical needs. She has helped men get into bee farming so that not only do some of these communities have an industry in that community of bee farming and honey and, and sales from that and providing honey for the bakery, but it provides an income for families there. They're digging wells to provide water. She's worked with an agency in Uganda called Children in Distress where they help street kids and children with HIV get into a home and get the drugs that they need. And most of all, big picture of all of it is the gospel. The gospel that's at the center of all of it. Robin is going to visit this summer and give our church an update um, with what's going on in the ministry and what needs they have right now. And I was thinking, how cool would it be if our church just decided, let's build a bakery in Uganda and we just fund the whole thing. And Robin doesn't have to bake bread and go to a dozen churches to try to do this. We as a church are saying we want to plant our flag in Uganda and say this is an extension of our ministry here in Fillmore. I think that would be beautiful. Another ministry that we would like to support, which we already do support, is the Mercy Ministries. Jeff and his wife Stephanie have been to our church. Jeff has preached in in our church. And they were a family of ten from Texas. God gave Jeff a burden for Kenya. And they moved there in, I believe, 2016 to care for children and to plant a church. And they have three main ministries there. One is called Mercy Home, where they take care of over 100 children. Eleven of them are HIV positive. They started Mercy Christian Academy, which is a private Christian school, completely funded by donations, completely funded by the church. And then Mercy Baptist Church, which is their church plant. And Jeff and I, um, we do a Zoom. We try to do it once a week. Just I want to encourage him, and he just gives me updates. And so we're trying to, every Tuesday morning, do a Zoom call for about an hour. And he told me what they do at their church services is they have a meal afterwards and they invite the villages, the local villages to come and have a meal with them, but they have to come to the church service first. So they've already got like 150 in their group. And this one Sunday that I talked to them, 479 people were at the church service. So that means, you know, 300 people from these villages came and they they were, you know, part of this church service and hearing the gospel. What an amazing opportunity they have there to reach out to this very impoverished place in in Kenya and hear the gospel and and be fed. And some for some of these people, this is the only meal they're going to get that day. But more importantly, they're hearing Christ preached. And so we decided, our elders decided, we would increase our monthly support for them from $1,000 to $5,000. 
and we would help dig them out of a, a hole they kind of fell into beginning with this year because two of their large donors uh, were no longer able to continue giving, and so they were $15,000 in the hole, and we met that need, and they are just beyond thankful for how we've come in and helped them. And we hope to continue. As long as the Lord provides for us, we want to keep that going. The third one, we thought we want to do something locally. As wonderful it is as it is to invest in ministries across the world, hey, there's ministries in Ventura County. And one of those is called Gabriel's House. And this is a ministry started by Pastor Sam Gallucci, who pastored a church in Ventura, and he had a heart for the homeless. And his church was able to purchase this uh, rundown hotel that had about a dozen rooms, and so they converted that into a place where they could help homeless people get off the street, get off drugs and alcohol, and um, become changed people, hopefully, the hope is always through Jesus Christ. And they did such a good job with that, the city of Oxnard approached them and said, hey, we want you to do something similar in our city. And so they said, we have a piece of property that we will let you use if you just come and you can run the thing and we just need help. And so for the last 10 years, they have run this program called Gabriel's House And this is an outreach to women who are in crisis, women and children, homeless women, drug-addicted women. And they not only provide a place to meet their immediate needs, but the hope is that they come to Christ. And so there's Bible studies throughout the week. And my wife and I have gone to tour uh, the place, and we've gone to um, an event where... Women give their testimonies about how much their lives have been transformed. And I met with Sam for lunch back in March, and this brother has vision. I mean, he wants to do the same thing that he's doing in Oxnard. His eyes, his focus is on Thousand Oaks next, and so they're presently looking for a property to buy in Thousand Oaks, and he really needs the support of churches to do this. And he even wants to change the arrangement in Oxnard because he recognizes that, you know, hey, the house that we're using there is city-owned and he wants to accept nothing from the Gentiles kind of thing. I mean, it's working now, but you can see how the world dictating anything that they're doing because of their property is going to be a problem, particularly if there's more and more persecution Um, in America against the church. So all of this is going to take money. It all needs to come from the local churches. And so we want to come alongside that ministry and invest in what they are doing there. Now, I have a great opportunity for you if you want to learn more about this ministry. They are having an event next Saturday, April 22nd, 11 a.m. in Oxnard. There's going to be food, there's going to be fellowship, there's going to be testimonies of some of the women who have gone through and lived at the Gabriel's house, some who continue still live there, some who have come to Christ. And this event is a fundraiser to spread awareness of what they're doing and to try to raise money to continue the work. 
It's $50 a seat, but part of that is a gourmet lunch. And I was so confident that our people would want to go to this that I've already reserved a table for eight. And I told Tammy, who's one of the ladies who runs the program, I want to contact her tomorrow and tell her we'll take two tables already paid for. All you got to do is show up and eat and meet some wonderful Christians and hear some testimonies. It's this coming Saturday, 11 a.m. It's in Oxnard. Men, this is a wonderful date you can take your wife to. It's already paid for. Gourmet lunch. And who doesn't want to hear about transformed lives? So I have a sign-up sheet in the back. I want you to sign up. I hope the list is long. I want to tell Tammy tomorrow we need the second table. She would be thrilled. And you don't have to pay a cent. So this, these are some ideas of what we, are, what we want to do with how generous God has been to us as a church. We want to be faithful stewards with the money that you have given over the years. And we think this is the best way forward. I imagine that might open up some questions people might have. I thought we could take the last few minutes. If anyone has any questions, I don't know if I'm going to have all the answers, but I will try. Mike. Can we use some graphic design? I'll keep that in mind. You're my man if we do. I believe she can put a bakery together for $25,000. Um, it's usually in conjunction with a church, so there will be a local church that kind of oversees the, 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 the maintenance and the running of everything, but I believe 25000 is the number. Good? We're good? If you think of a question later, email me. I'd love to talk to you about this. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you do provide so richly for us. And what a great responsibility we've been given with all the wealth that we have in this country that we can not only take care of our needs locally, Lord, but that we could even co-labor with others in the world. Uh, co-labors with others who have gone into the world to fulfill your mission. And so, God, I pray this would encourage us, those who give to this ministry faithfully, that they would be all the more eager to give, that they, Lord, would be sharing in this vision, having this same heart that you do for bringing Christ to the nations, looking after orphans and widows in their distress, preaching the gospel to every creature. Oh God, may this just be something that excites and invigorates us. And may we see Heritage Valley Bible Church as something greater than beyond this, this very location. So Father, we commit this to you. We ask that you continue to do great and wonderful things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.